Father, man, Lord, I'm so thankful, God, that we come to you and, Lord, that you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we can, we can look at Jesus and, and understand you on some level, God. But, Lord, you're so much more. Lord, you're beyond our comprehension in so many ways, God. And, Lord, I'm, I'm also thankful, Father, that as we come to these prophetic passages, Lord, with uh, Sunday being in Matthew 24 and now tonight, Lord God, just digging into this. And, Lord, man, I freely admit I... I barely have an idea of what we're looking at here. But Lord, I trust that you know exactly what you meant. Lord, and that you have it all extremely, uh, completely well in hand, God. And so, Father, as we look at this tonight, God, I pray, Father, for all of us, Lord, that, that you would open our minds to the things that you want to speak to us, God. Lord, that we wouldn't be uh, bogged down or beat down by the fact that, Lord, some of this stuff is just not easy to understand. And that God, in, in the midst of all of it, Lord, that we would keep the main thing, the main thing, Lord, that you're coming back. Amen. Father, that you died and rose again for us, Lord. Those two bookends are the most important and amazing things, Lord, about all of your word, Lord. And that you sent your son to die for us, Lord, and to rise again, Lord, and that you, you're sending him back to come get us. Oh God, we thank you. We praise you, God. And Lord, as we dig into this, Father, would you just open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, to the things that you want to speak to us. God, get me out of the way, Lord. Not that I'm going to be in the way, Father, because I freely admit I'm so far over my head. So God, speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you guys, last week we did finish the chapter on the dry bones, and, and it was awesome, right? God speaking of the, through Ezekiel, of the future restoration of Israel. And he did it in the most visceral way. And you guys, anybody that knows me at all knows that I love just that. I, I, I don't know what it is or why, but I'm like, yeah, bones getting like flesh. You know, I don't know. It's just cool. So he just did it in this amazing visceral way. Why? Because I don't think he wanted us to avoid the imagery of it. I think he wanted us to see that when this was happening, like it was only him he was the only way this was ever going to happen, right? And so he showed Ezekiel this thing of like, look, these are not just bones, not just rotting flesh on bones. These are like dry, dead, not ever going to be returning bones. And we looked at the fact, uh, and I know Steve brought it up too, that the, you know, the way this ex is explained in the Hebrew, it's like these bones were scattered. It's not like here was a skeleton, right, of Bessie. And that Bessie was suddenly like, and like stood up and was good to go. No, Bessie had to be gotten from all over the field, right? Like her head was rolling towards the other part of her torso and the leg was like making its way over and they all attached themselves together. And that was kind of the imagery that we were seeing that God, only God was going to make this right. You guys, we know from this that God restored the people of Israel. That was he, what he was showing them. How encouraging. And how encouraging to do it in such a way that's like, hey, guys, you got yourselves here. I've warned you not to do these things. And you just kept going. So you put yourself in Babylon, essentially. I'm punishing you to try and get you to come back to me. But this restoration thing, this thing that's going to happen, it's only because I love you. It's only because of me. And isn't that a picture of us? Right? We're not going to ever be good enough. The law is there to show us that we stink. 
That's basically it. So he sent his son, Jesus, the only way we're ever going to get to heaven. You guys, it is a beautiful, amazing picture of the gospel, essentially, in the Old Testament. We see it here. So tonight, though, we're going to look at something that, to me, is even further in the future. Because as we spoke about, what I tend to believe about this prophecy that we read in chapter 37 is that that kind of began that process in 1948 when they were reestablished, right? They've been reestablished now. They are a nation, a recognized nation by the entire world. Everybody around them is looking at that. Of course, we had Ezra and Nehemiah and them coming back, but they were never really, truly the nation that they are uh, until 1948, right? And so that's what I see. And like we've talked about all throughout all this, if you don't agree, that's okay. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And, and I'm quite okay with being wrong because Jesus is always right. Amen? Amen? So here's the deal. Tonight, we're going to look at this chapter 38, Gog and Magog, or really Gog and his place called Magog, because the name of this message I've called Gog and his cronies, because that's kind of, I don't know, it just felt like that's what we're talking about tonight, right? Gog and all his cronies and what God's going to do about them. But these chapters, you guys, are like, by most scholars' accounts, are like the hardest chapters or some of the most hardest chapters to like comprehend in all of the Old Testament. And I don't think it's by mistake that we're actually in Matthew 24, which most scholars say, man, the Olivet Discourse is like a really hard chapter to parse out, right? Like in, those chapters are hard in the New Testament. And so, man, you can't, like, I'm not smart enough to say like, hey, let's, let's start the book of Matthew, what, two Octobers ago. And then let's, after we're done with Judges, let's just jump right into Ezekiel and let's, let's work it out perfectly so that the pastor has to do more work than I've ever had to do in my entire life to study, <laughs> right? To like try and figure out these really, really hard chapters to be able to teach them and hopefully give you guys a meal uh, in it. Man, like there's no way this happened. So I feel like, man, this is from the Lord that we're here right now. And so I'm glad you guys are here tonight. I'm glad you guys haven't just been like, sweet, we got the dry bones. I'm out, right? Because <laughs> Ezekiel's been tough, hasn't it? Yeah. It's been a tough, a tough book because it is a tough section of history. And we're, we've, we've rolled into these beautiful few chapters of just, man, like, look what God's doing. And this is a beautiful chapter too. But man, is it hard to get our head around what this all means? So I want us to have this one big takeaway. I'm going to tell you the takeaway before we even begin. You ready? Here's the big takeaway that God's shown me as I've studied throughout this week for this message. And that is this. It's okay to jump into God's word and not understand everything. And I need us to hear that. God is not calling all of us to go get degrees in the Bible and then start reading it, right? I have a degree in the Bible and I read this and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what this means, right? I have an idea. A lot of people have ideas. A lot of people have ideas that have way more degrees than I'll ever have, that know, you know, have forgotten more about the Bible than I'll ever know. Like, and they still have different ideas about this chapter. It's okay. Don't let the enemy win a victory in your life by convincing you, I can't read his word. Why? Because I'm, it's really hard to understand. Or, man, my reading comprehension isn't that great. Or, you know, I just don't get anything out of it. Well, how about this? Instead, dig into it and trust that God's going to give you something out of it. Yeah. Instead, dig in and understand that this is a living word. And he wants to speak to you through it. Why am I bringing all this up? Because, guys, just this week as I've been studying, I've heard 
three or four people that have said to me, oh, I don't read the word because I have a real hard time reading. Read the word. Listen, if you have a hard time reading, get it on audio, right? Be immersed in the word. And I would encourage you, read anyway. Do you realize how most slaves learned how to read? They read the Bible. A lot of slaves did that. A lot of people that couldn't read back in the day read the Bible. Man, I promise God's word is alive and it will speak to you no matter what grade level you can read at. Sincerely. So read it, trust it, and trust that God has something for you in it. Amen? Amen. And if you come across sections like Ezekiel 38 and you get to the end of it, you're like, I don't know. That's okay. Keep reading. Verse one of chapter 38. Hopefully that sets you guys up for a lot of uh, what we're going to be saying tonight, which is, I don't know. (laughs) Verse one of chapter 38 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal and prophesy against him, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So God tells Ezekiel to set his face against Gog. I don't know if y'all never knew this, but like I always thought Gog and Magog were two different places. Not true. Gog is a person, and Magog is the place. So, and that, hopefully that bakes your noodle a little bit. So Gog, you guys, is this prince of these places, of Magog overall, and then of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And so God tells Ezekiel, hey, prophesy against this guy, Gog. And before we go any further, I want to talk about who this Gog is and where is Magog, right? Good questions, right? Nowhere on the map is Magog right now, right? Do we know where Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal is? Not really, but I want you to have an understanding of this. Most scholars believe, and I, I see this as well, is that Magog is kind of like saying New, New England. And Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal is sort of like saying New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine are all part of New England. You get it? So kind of think of it that way. That's kind of the idea here. So before we dig in, you got to remember, and I'm going to keep saying this over and over and over again, is that this chapter has been debated for centuries. And so don't take my word for it. And I promise you, you can go look at tons of commentaries and even guys that I trust, like Warren Wearsby, right? Or John Walvert, these guys that are really solid, that I really, really trust. I read both of them today and they completely disagree with each other on this chapter. It's okay. So take what I'm saying, listen to it and pray about it. Just like I'm always saying to us all, right? Be Bereans, dig in, ask God what it means. So don't freak out. I'm gonna offer some thoughts and explain why I myself kind of lean towards a certain thought, but I'm just gonna lay out a bunch of different ideas, a bunch of different thoughts on this. So let's start by looking at some Hebrew that gives us some ideas, some some knowledge here. Gog in Hebrew actually means mountain, which sounds like a place, doesn't it? And in the book of Revelation, it almost seems like in the Greek, it's speaking of a, a sort of a place. But here, what it really means is ruler. It's a way of saying ruler. Magog means this, you ready? Land of Gog. So this man is going to be a man that rules over a great deal of the land north of Israel. 
And the reason we know that is we're going to find out later is that most of this land is north of Israel. And one well-known theologian, this guy named John Trapp, from way back in the day, he speculated that Meshach represented the Muslims, which, remember, didn't exist until 610 AD, and that Tubal represents the Roman Catholics. I don't see that. I think that's really stretching it. But that's one idea. I'm giving you guys the concept of just how varied people see this chapter. Others believe that Meshach and Tubal refer to specifically Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and Iran. Could be. Some scholars believe that Rosh, since it sounds a lot like Russia, that that's a representation of modern-day Russia, and that Meshach equals Moscow, and that Tubal equals Tobolsk, which is another city in Russia. Warren Wearsby has this to say. This is a quote from Warren Wearsby. He said this about that idea of Russia and Moscow and Tobolsk. He says, we would have a hard time defending this on linguistic grounds. In other words, we can't say, oh, Rosh sounds like Russia, therefore that's right. Right? That makes sense. That would be bad, you know, hermeneutics to just kind of like parse that out and be like, that's it. But says it doesn't rule out the participation of modern Russia, since it is located in the north. And that's, we're going to read that in verse 6 and verse 15. And then again, next week in 39.2, it talks about the fact that, God, or that Magog is in the north. So it doesn't rule out Russia, but neither does it demand it. So what's he saying? Essentially, he's saying this. It isn't the best evidence that the ancient Hebrew words sort of sound like Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk. But Russia is to the north, and we're going to read in a moment that that's exactly where God is aiming with telling Ezekiel, hey, speak against Magog. And he's telling him, aim north, basically, right? But we also do have some other evidence that points to Russia a little bit. Greek historian Herodotus said this, that the land of Magog was that of the Scythians. And the Scythians, you guys, historically, we know, are the modern-day ancestors of the Russians, also, we have Josephus, right? You guys all know we've talked about Flavius Josephus before, right? This Jewish historian that was right around, like right after the time of Christ. He said that Magog was in the land also of the Scythians, which is in the modern day place that we call Russia now. And so I will tell you guys, I personally tend towards that belief that it's speaking more specifically of the area of Russia. Is it the Soviet Union or is it Russia? I don't know. I just think it's north. It's that big chunk. It's a huge area of land, right, that has a lot of power. I think it makes sense to me that it would be that. There's a lot of scholars that would agree with me or that I guess I would agree with them on that, right? But there's plenty that don't. So again, dig into it and look at it. How important is it that we know exactly where Magog is? I don't think it's that important, right? How often have we said it? Jesus. Jesus is the most important, right? Like, we're not going to argue about this. The fact that we don't completely know how to interpret this cleanly uh, is just, to me, one of those moments where we get to go to God and be like, man, God, give me whatever wisdom you want to process all of this. But also, Lord, give me the humility to say, I don't know, right? I hope you guys, as a pastor, that I'm not ever too proud to stand up here and be like, yeah, I don't know what the answer is exactly. Because in this moment, that's where I'm at, right? Like, I don't know. I've got an idea and I can give you my idea, but that's, that's all we got. And, and I, I think specifically in this chapter, especially, if you say those three words, I don't know, you're in very good company, <laughs> right? So you guys, verse four, 
Let's keep going. Verse four says this, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, that sounds fun, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togomarth from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companions that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, uh, which had long been desolate. They were brought out from the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. You guys, Ezekiel tells us that God is going to force, essentially, I'm using that in air quotes, force Gog, force this leader, this ruler over this huge army, and all of his armies that he has, all of the other people that are going to come along with him, he's going to kind of force them to go out against Israel, right? A hook in the mouth, you guys, you guys got to understand. And I think we've talked about this before, but when Assyria took away the Northern Kingdom, something that Assyria was historically known for is that they would string all of their captives together on a string through their mouth. So think about it. This was like a fishing area, right? This Nineveh was like the capital, right? And how did, why did God use Jonah after he came up out of the belly of the fish, right? And he gets spit up, right? And he gets up there and he's probably all bleached and he comes up and he goes in and he tells them like, yo, I was in a fish for three days. And they're like, what? Right? Because they worshiped a fish and they were like, whoa, like, what is this? And they wanted to hear about what he had to say. And so they repented, thank God, but it didn't last long. And then we had Nahum and then, Right? But what we see here is, is that Assyria, they, they understood what this meant. The people of Israel would understand what God was saying because they realized like, man, think about this. What was the idea of stringing them together on a string like fish, humans? Because think about this. If you had a string that had been pierced through your mouth and then out the other side and they kept going, imagine if you're walking and you start slowing down. That's going to hurt. Imagine if you try to speed up. That's going to hurt. Imagine if you want to get away. You got to rip your, rip your mouth right out, right, to get away. It's a painful process. So in a way, it was kind of cool for them, for Assyria, as far as like a torture technique and a way to get people to march is that you're pretty much guaranteeing that you don't have to do much oversight. You just got to watch them, right? What is God saying here? He's saying, I'm going to stick a hook in your mouth and I'm going to pull you. I'm going to pull you down there. Now, God gives us free will, right? That's why I said he's going to force Gog. But the reality is, is that what we see here is what we always see. God is sovereign. He's doing what he wants. He's telling us in advance. He told the people of Israel earlier in the, in the book, right? In advance, like, hey, you guys might think you're the choice cuts of meat there in Jerusalem. You might think you're something special, but there's going to be a siege mount brought up against you. And they all laughed at him and thought he was silly. And then it happened, right? Even down to the day. So I want, to, I, want to, I want us to think about this. Look, here is this leader that's going to think that, that God's saying, like, you're going to go down and you're going to fight against Israel. But the reality is, is that he's going to think he's got his own plan and idea. And we're going to read that in a little bit. And isn't that just like Satan? 
Think about this. Satan is so arrogant, you guys, that he actually thinks he's still directing things, even though we know from the book of Job and from the book of Revelation and from different books that he has to go have permission for everything he ever does. Everything that he ever does, God has said yes to. Like, okay, go do that. But Satan still comes down and he's like, look what I'm doing. <laughs> look how fiendish I am. Like, no, dude, you're just a pawn. And that's what this guy is. So we see here that all these other countries are going to go out with Gog and his army. So let's look at some of these. Persia, most, I don't want to say most, some scholars that I was reading said that that's maybe modern day Iran, right? A lot of people believe that it's modern day Iran. Ethiopia, we know where Ethiopia is. Libya, we know where that is. Gomer and all his troops, most People believe that that's probably referring to Turkey, modern-day Turkey, right? Togomar is what I found in a couple different things that I was looking at. It's saying that it's all the Armenian people to the north of Israel. And that's interesting because I looked up who are the Armenians, Armenian people north of Israel. And you want to hear some, some statistics here or countries, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Essentially, almost all of the Middle Eastern countries is around Israel. <laughs> so, and that's just me doing a Google search. So you guys, essentially, there's a map that I want to show you that we can look at. This is one interpretation. You notice that it's called the Armageddon Coalition, which gives away one thought of when this, all this big battle's taking place, right? That it might be the Battle of Armageddon. But if we look here, do you see all those circles? Do you see how it's kind of surrounding them? Now think about this. That's all of Russia up there. But like, imagine that whole huge area and all this other areas coming in and all attacking. If you just went with the ones to the north and took out Egypt and Libya, it's already a force that is huge compared to this tiny little country. I mean, we talked about it, right? Israel as a whole, you guys, is, is like about the size of Rhode Island. It's tiny. It's super tiny. And so one country, Russia, coming against Israel from the human perspective should be more than enough military. Now, granted, Russia's kind of proving that they kind of stink, right, <laughs> recently. So maybe that's not true. But let's add Iran. Let's add Turkey. Let's add all these other countries. This could be a formidable force coming against this one nation. Do you guys see how this Gog might look at those odds and say, oh, I'm good, I got this. There's not gonna be a problem here. Like, there's, we've got this. So, question is, about all of this, has it already happened? Some people believe it has. Some people kind of point to the six days war, but a lot of that doesn't really line up here, does it? So it was essentially a war that was like, I said on Sunday that it was 10 nations, but I looked it up as only three main nations that were fighting against them. But in six days, you guys, from Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, Israel was attacked by these three countries and they took ground. They didn't lose ground, they took ground in six days and everybody just gave up. If that isn't a sign that God is with these people, I don't know what is. But you guys, I, I, I personally can't look at that and say, oh yeah, that's this. No, I, I just don't see it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't really line up, does it? 
Also, notice we don't have Russia or many of the nations from the far north coming against Israel during that war, that six-day war. It was kind of just those guys that are like right there on their, on their plane, basically, right? Just coming against them. So it just doesn't seem like that's it. I don't see this as something that's already happened. I think it's something that has yet to happen. I do believe that it's quite possible that, it's the, that it, this is speaking specifically of the Battle of Armageddon. But there are some other people that believe that maybe this is something that happens before the tribulation begins. Have you guys ever read uh, the Left Behind series? So Tim LaHaye was one of my professors at Liberty. Great, great guy, right? Jerry Jenkins, pretty well-respected author, right? These guys, they wrote these books. I read all the books. It was great. They believe that this is something that happens before the tribulation. I don't agree. Do you get it? There's other guys that believe that this is something that happens during the tribulation. I don't really see that either because I'm like, if we read the book of Revelation and we have, right? So it's like, as we look through that, I just didn't see any spot where it's like, except for the battle of Armageddon during the tribulation, where it's just this all-out warfare, that's happening. So again, I don't, I don't really see that either. And then there's some other people that think this, that this is the battle that's going to take place at the end of the millennial reign. So if we believe that there's a seven-year tribulation, and so, right, and so the rapture is going to happen either before the tribulation, or some people believe the middle of the tribulation, right? And those two are both ones that I'm like, eh, it could be one of those two. I, I'm hoping for the pre-trib, right? <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. But the reality is, is that I'm like, when we look at all those things, we know then that there's going to be a thousand years of Jesus here on earth, if that's what you believe. If you believe in a literal tribulation, you believe most of the time in a literal thousand year reign of Christ, right? And so if that's the case, and that's how that rolls out, we know the book of Revelation says that after that thousand years, for you guys that have come through Revelation with us over the two years it took us to get through Revelation, right? That, that Satan will be released again. Why? Because there's going to be people that have had survived that seven-year period. There were still kids being had, you know, and, you know, men and women coming together, getting married, having kids, all the way through even the tribulation or just having kids, however that looks. And so these kids, maybe, possibly, there's going to be a group that survive it that survive. And so now they're in this thousand year reign where the earth is like being ruled and reigned over by Jesus. And so the earth is going to be much closer and much better to perfection than it ever was, right? We're going to go back sort of to the garden of Eden, but not complete perfection. Why? Because we still have humanity here, right? So at the end of that thousand year reign, we read in the book of Revelation that there's going to be this period where Satan's released again to basically allow those people that lived for a thousand years under the rule and reign of Jesus to choose who are they going to follow. And I, 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 my mind is blown that everyone isn't like, Satan, get out of here, right? But apparently that's not going to be the case. And so, but at that point is when now Satan is going to be thrown into the pit of hell, locked up, everybody else, it's going to be like, that's when the judgment is just going to be completely done. Now, that's... What I see, and again, as we've continued to talk about it, and I want to be faithful to this, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. I'm not worried about it. I really don't care. So the reality is, you guys, there's some people that think that this battle that's being talked about here is what's going to happen with Satan after the thousand-year reign. Again, I don't see it happening that way because it sounds to me more like there's going to be a really small little skirmish, and that's going to be the end of it, right? So verse 8 
speaks of something that does give us a clue to me that this isn't something that has already happened and that it isn't something even that's going to be happening before the tribulation. Here's what it is. Verse 8 speaks of these things. It says, after many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from the people. So after many days, in the latter years, the Hebrew here is miyamim rabim. And it speaks of this indefinite period of time, but it speaks clearly of the end of that indefinite period of time. The way it's spoken of in the Hebrew is speaking of like at the end of a long time, So to me, it speaks of something that's way in the future. And again, it could be argued that Ezekiel was written a long, long time ago from 1946 or from the Six Days War, right? So like you could make an argument because it's not a definitive number. It's not a specific amount of time. It's just saying it's happening at the end of this indefinite amount of time, of this long time. And so I think that kind of points to something that God is speaking of that's like, dude, this is going to happen way near the end of it all, way near the end of just the wrap up of history and what's going on. Let's keep reading. I feel like I should have done this as a Bible study so we could ask questions. So I could say, I don't know. (laughs) Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your armies to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? So like we spoke about before, even though God was the one that was going to be compelling Gog to go, do you notice what it says here? He's like, oh yeah, I got this idea. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up against Israel. And God's like, I already said it. It's not your idea, right? But he's going to think it is. And so he's going to make this plan. He's going to come out against it. Another thing that to me speaks of the fact that this is something that is going to happen far into the future is this. You guys, did you notice it says, I'm going to go up against the land of unwalled villages to a peaceful people. Is that where Israel's at right now? No. Is that where they were in, you know, whenever the six days war happened? No. But. If we look at the tribulation during the first three and a half years, what do we know? There's going to be peace, right? It's going to be this false peace, but there's going to be a peace. And so again, it kind of makes sense to me that at the end of all of this, that he's going to be like, all right, I'm going up against this nation that's I've let go for far too long, right? Is kind of what I, what I read in this. And so it, it is what it is, but you can see the arrogance of this guy believing, hey man, look what I figured out, all on my own, I've got this evil plan. And God's like, no, go back and read Ezekiel and you would know that I said it a long time ago. So we also see this, that as he heads towards Israel, many others are gonna tag along. Why? Well, like we've been reading, as we went through all of the different curses against all the different nations, you remember? 
Egypt, and all these other guys that he was like, hey man, you wanted to see the downfall of Israel. You wanted to see the downfall of my people because of what you're gonna gain out of it? That's exactly, these young lions, these merchants, what are they looking for? They're looking for any gain that they can get from the downfall of what you know, they see as this nation that's super prosperous. And so they're like, man, whenever they're taken out, we can go in and grab what we want. We can go get what we want out of it. Au contraire. Verse 14 says this. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and the many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you out against my land so that the nations may know me, that I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in the former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? So God is making it clear that even though they're going to come out against the land and even though they're like, man, we just want to be at peace. Like we just want to do our thing. Like let us alone. That when, when Gog and all his guys, all his goons, right? That's why I should have named this. God, Gog and his goons. I'm changing the name. Maya, where are you at? Gog and his goons. I like that better. When Gog shows up with all his guys, you guys, basically there's, it's going to be so many people. It's going to be like a cloud to cover the land. Think about that. Think about how many people are coming up against this tiny nation. Think about how terrifying that would be. If we look at the book of Revelation and we see the tribulation period, is it hard to believe? Okay, because there's two different ways we can look at this. Either Ezekiel was referring to horses because he didn't understand what tanks and all the modern warfare stuff was. Or something that makes more sense to me is, think about all the things that are going to be happening over the seven-year period that might be all they have left, right? That might be it, right? Like they might not have the ability to keep the machinery running and to keep the gas in the machines and keep everything going because most of the population is gonna be wiped out at this point. And those that are left are like gonna just be trying to live. There's gonna be so many bad things happening. So, you know, and again, I'm bringing that up because there are some scholars that I was reading that actually said like, well, I mean, obviously this was something that happened way, way, way back because we got past horses pretty quickly. And I'm like, or you're an idiot. And maybe you just don't see that God's capable of using, like with John, did John know what all these things were going to look like? And that's why he said, this is like this, because it's the best I can do, right? Is it hard to believe that Ezekiel would do the same thing and be like, hey man, they came out with these things like horses, a bunch of horses, or could it be even that, like, no, he saw what he saw, and that's what's going to happen? Could be. We don't know. But the reality is, and the thing that I want to point out is this. Man, they're coming with so many people that it's like a cloud. Maybe their boot stomps are going to kick so much, much dust up that it's going to be a cloud of dust that they can't even see. Maybe that's what it's going to be. Maybe people are going to look out, and it's going to look like a cloud, just a sea of human. That could be it, too. Verse 18, you guys encouraged? <laughs> Verse 18, and it will come to pass at the same time 
when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. That's terrifying. For my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the fields, all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog through all of my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many people who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and then they shall know that I am the Lord. You guys, God is telling us up front, like, man, this is, this is what the judgment of Gog and all the peoples is going to look like. So if this is the battle of Armageddon, is this a little bit more insight into, you know, the fact that, that Jesus only had to use his words, right? Like that, that, that there was no more there except him just speaking. Is this what happens when he speaks? I, I'm, I don't know is my answer, but I think it's, it's possible. It's a possibility that this is part of it, that, that man, we as the church, having already been raptured, right, that we're going to be behind Jesus and he's going to be like, yo, or, <laughs> right, he's going to say what he says and then all the stuff is just going to rain down on people and it's going to be the end of it. I don't know, but I do know this. Another thing that gives me a pretty clear insight into the fact that this hasn't happened yet, not once have we seen mountains thrown down, Right? every wall falling to the ground. We haven't seen that yet. But remember what it says in the book of Revelation that when Jesus steps foot, that there's going to be an earthquake to end all earthquakes, that, the, that the, actually the, at the Mount of Olives is going to split and there's going to be a, a river. It's going to be crazy. Like the stuff that, geologically that happens when Jesus is just like, all right, I'm stepping down, right? Is it hard to not, I, I don't know. To me, it's so clear that like, man, with his word, people are just going to be annihilated, right? Because they're coming out against his people and he's like, no, we're done. I'm done playing. And that when he steps down, man, all this stuff is just, everything's changing. To me, it, it's not hard to see it. There's going to be a great earthquake in Israel. There's going to be flooding rain, hail, fire and brimstone. It's going to be horrific for everyone that's on the ground at this point. We're going to talk more next week about what I think takes place, uh, you know, in the timeline. Gog's army is destroyed. There's a lot more for us to look at. And I want to encourage you guys to read ahead, like I always do. But man, read ahead to chapter 39. You know, if you need a good commentary, if you're like, man, like I don't get any of this. Is there anything you can recommend? Man, David Guzik, there's a lot of great guys out there that I would definitely say like, and I'm reading a lot of them too, right? It's okay. It's okay in two ways. It's okay to just read his word and say, God, I don't get it, and that's okay. And it's also okay to have some helps, right? No good pastor is just up here being like, oh, yeah, I got it. No, you look at people that are, 
that are knowledgeable. And so I would love to recommend some things for all of you guys so that it would enhance your own study of the word. But I want to encourage you in one thing. If you have a study Bible, if you have any type of Bible that has any type of commentary in it, can I just encourage you guys in something? Do not read the commentary first. <laughs> read the word <laughs> first, right? I, I specifically don't have study Bibles because I just spend a day or two just here, just studying, just reading, just asking God to show me what he wants to show me. And then after a couple of days, I dig into commentaries to see most of the time that I'm not wacky and coming up with some crazy idea. Or I freely admit in a chapter like this, I go to it to be like, okay, I've read for two days and I still don't have a clue. And so I go to commentaries to like, try to see what other people have said. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Don't be afraid. Don't be so prideful to think that you got to get it all figured out on your own. And also don't be afraid to look at this and say, whoa, what the heck does this mean? I don't know. Is an okay answer. It really is. So as we've been saying over the last few weeks, as we've dug into this, you know, just deep dive into the end times and eschatology, I, I think it should give every Christian here two things. It should give us all hope, right? There's hope, man. Jesus is coming back. It also, to me, it solidifies in my own heart, and I hope it solidifies in you guys as Christians, the mission that Jesus gave us. He gave us a mission to go out into the world and to make disciples, to go tell people about the gospel, the good news, right? That he died on the cross and rose again. And what a difference that makes, not just in your eternal salvation and where you're gonna live for eternity, but in your day-to-day -day life right now, amen? And so, yeah, it should fill us with hope, but it should also get us back on mission if we're off mission. And our mission is to like, man, live your life for Christ. Go into the world, tell people about Jesus and live the gospel message out in the way you live. Amen? Go tell live. So let's not read this to just be fascinated and confused. <laughs> Even though that might be what we are. That's what I am when I read Ezekiel 38. I'm like, wow. I'm also thankful because I'm like, you know, Jesus, I know this. You saved me from all of this. I'm not going to be there for that. Right? I know the one that's going to rescue me from that stuff. But let's not just read it and be fascinated and confused and miss the main point. And the main point is always Jesus and the fact that we need to be telling people about him. Amen? Because the reality is, you guys, this is a horrific future for some people. Do you want that to be your relatives or your coworkers? Do you want that to be anybody you know? Listen, I don't want that to be my worst enemy, Right? it really should get us back on mission. Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.